This is the Athletic Baseball Show on the Athletic Podcast Network. Hey everybody, welcome into another edition of the Athletic Baseball Show presented by Tops. Check out Tops Project 70, celebrating 70 years of Tops baseball cards. Happy Monday, everyone. I'm Tim McMaster along with Ken Rosenthal. As always, we're here to answer all of your baseball questions in the Monday mailbag. Ken, how are you doing? I'm doing well, Tim. How are you? I am good, Ken, and I know you were in the Bronx on Saturday night. Red Sox and Yankees finally playing this season, and so far, we're recording this before the Sunday night game, so so far it's been all Red Sox through two games. The Yankees continue this funk. They called up Chris Gittens on Saturday, a longtime minor leaguer, getting his chance, trying to find some spark for this offense, but so far, no luck in the Bronx with the power outage. No, and yes, we're recording this going into the Sunday night game. So if they score 15 on Sunday <laughs> night, don't hold it against us. Or but, give us complete credit, one or the other. Right, exactly. But I don't know that most Yankee fans would necessarily be swayed one way or the other by one 15-run outburst if it even happens or happened by this point. It's an odd season for them. They started off slowly. They went on a 19-6 and run in which they looked better. Didn't look great. They were only averaging four and a half runs during that period. And now entering Sunday night, they were in a three and nine rut yet again. They don't look good. When teams don't hit, they always look dead and they always cause their fans and people watching them to wonder what the heck is going on. And yes, I am wondering what the heck is going on. This was a top four offense in each of the last four seasons. So you would expect they would be a highly productive offense again, simply because it's essentially the same players. Same cast of characters. And yet, it's certainly not working out that way so far. And listen, we've noted flaws in the Yankee lineup over the years. A little too one-dimensional and home run dependent. Very much right-handed. All these things were true before. They're true now. Hmm. And they're coming to the fore maybe a little bit more than they were in the past. But what's curious to me is how a team can break down almost as one in this fashion. Really, the only two guys who have hit at all, or Judge, who has hit well, and Urshela, who has been okay, not great, but good. So I don't know where this is going, and I don't know what it points to, but there are some questions, legitimate questions, about the way this team has been put together. Questions that start with ownership, which has not wanted to go over the luxury tax threshold. Questions that continue with the front office, which has made some decisions that, like many decisions in baseball, we can look at and say, "Mm, that might not be working out so well. And then the manager, too. I know a lot of fans of the Yankees, at least, have said, hey, this guy's not fiery enough. This is not the kind of guy you need in this moment. And yet the Yankees feel this is exactly the kind of guy they need in this moment. I'm talking about their front office because they want a stable hand and they didn't want another Joe Girardi. That's why Aaron Boone was hired in the first place. So I don't know where this is going, but I do say or I will say that the questions about this team and all the things that people are saying They're fair. And we'll see over 162 games how it plays out. Yeah, and Giancarlo Stanton has really been kind of the poster boy for the good and the bad, right? He started slow. He went on a tear when they started winning. He's two for his last 23 going into Sunday, 0 for 4 on Saturday. And they sat him on Sunday, which is 
you know, a, a chance to try to get something going for him, I guess, to just, just take a break and rest a little. Tim, he's actually the poster boy for a lot of this. And I know he had the great playoff last year, and we cannot forget that. When he's been healthy, he's been pretty good. But he has not always been healthy. Health is a problem with this team. He is not the athletic guy that he once was. That's a problem for this team. They're not athletic enough. He's a right-handed slugger. Yep, he makes a lot of money, and he's not producing to that level of what he's making. Yep, check, 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 check. And I don't want to put too much on him, but that was a front office decision that has backfired. And, of course, they've got many more years left of Giancarlo. All right, so the Yankees, a big story in baseball right now. Another big story in baseball right now. The league appears to be ready to start cracking down on pitchers using illegal substances. It's a topic, Ken, that you've written about. It's a topic you've talked about on this podcast. So when we get these stories that they're, they're ready to kind of crack down, what exactly does that mean? As far as I know, at this point, we're talking about Sunday night, the umpires are going to be involved in enforcement. And there have been some reports about just how they'll be involved and just what will happen. And my understanding is that a lot of these ideas are in play, how this will come about. And yet there has not been a final decision yet. Baseball is talking with the umpires. Baseball supposedly is going to talk with the players union. And they're going to try to get to some kind of meeting of the minds on how this is going to work before they announce or reveal to the clubs how it is going to work. To me, it's healthy. It's the point of what we've been writing about. Basically, our last story, the one I did with Britt, was about, hey, this is going on. People are upset about it. Why isn't it being enforced? Well, it's going to be enforced. And it's going to be really interesting to see what pitchers do, how they react, which pitchers' spin rates go way down, whether that's an effect of what's going on or not. It's just going to be fascinating to see this play out. And... Again, it hasn't happened yet, so I'm not going to applaud baseball until I see this actually in effect and working. But it's a healthy thing. It's the right thing to do. It's about time. This has been going on for years. Now, one thing I'm worried about, or not, I should say worried about, but concerned as far as a consequence of what's going to happen. Baseball has a pace of play issue. We all know that. We all write about that. We all talk about that. And if you're having umpires checking the pitchers constantly, that's going to affect the pace of play. Now, when I asked about this, I was told, hey, you can't have everything. (laughs) And if we want to stop the cheating with the pitchers, we're going to have to do this for a little bit and see where it goes. So one complaint might lead to another, but it's probably for the greater good in this case. You make a great point about whether or not we'd see spin rates go down once they start enforcing or if it'll be as guys get caught, right? I mean, that's if guys will stop once they know that people are watching them a little more closer. Well, it's interesting, Tim. That's a great point. And going back to that March 23rd memo in which the league told teams we're going to be stricter about monitoring and enforcing and checking balls, that memo the league thought would deter pitchers from going further because it was said in that memo, discipline is possible, and yet it didn't deter pitchers at all. I would say this problem is at an all-time high, and now we're going to see exactly how it plays out once this rule or these rules are actually enforced. Certainly going to be interesting. All right, let's get into the mailbag. Hey, this is Ken. I'm not available right now. Please leave a voicemail. 
If you want to get involved in the mailbag, of course, you can call us 646-543-7072. You can also use email tabaseballshow at gmail.com and a whole bunch of voicemails this week, which we like because we like hearing the question from you and nobody wants to hear me just reading them. So keep bringing those voicemails. And we talked about the Yankees, Ken, and that's where we're going to start with the voicemail. Hi, this is Jay Lentner from Oneonta, New York. My question concerns the Yankees. Uh, you have... Uh, at least four players, Miguel Andujar, Gary Sanchez, Frazier, and Torres. And it seems like the window has or is closing on all of them. And I'm wondering if you feel that this is a system problem with the Yankees, if it's what happens to young players and it's just uh, coincidental that it's happening to four of them all at one time, uh, or if there's any hope for any of them. Thank you. Jay, you get right to the point here, and you make a great point. Those four guys that you mentioned, Sanchez, Torres, Andujar, Frazier, they haven't progressed. If anything, they've gone backwards. A couple of them, maybe even three of them, are out of position. Sanchez is not a catcher. Torres, not really a shortstop. Andujar, certainly not an outfielder. That could be part of the problem. But one of the things the Yankees should be asking themselves is, why when a player goes to Tampa Bay, he could be a fringy guy. And all of a sudden, they get him right and they get him contributing at some level in the major leagues. And yet the Yankees have had this stagnation with some of their young players. And it is something that sticks out. It's something as a fan, an observant fan, you noticed. And I would think that if the Yankees are talking about these matters internally, and I'm sure they are, this is something that has come up. Because player development at the major league level is important too. It's not just happening at the minors anymore, not when these guys come up so young. And these players, the ones you mentioned, have not developed the way the Yankees expected, the way so many people expected once they made their debuts and looked so good. Yeah, we talked about Stanton being the poster boy, but those young players not progressing, that's another big story. All right, an email coming in from Brandon Terrell. He says, I've been a Cubs fan all my life as of today, and he means June 4th when he sent this email in. The Cubs are in first place. Their bullpen has been throwing extremely well, but there's no way they can do this through September, right? How long do you think the Cubs can maintain this run, and are they a legitimate contender again? Ken, it hasn't been a great weekend, actually, for the Cubs so far. Well, it's interesting. Brandon sent this on, you said, June 4th. That was Friday before the Giants series began, or actually maybe just after it began. And the Giants series has been rough for the Cubs. They lost the first three games, and one thing their front office has been pointing toward was June, when the schedule gets a little bit taxing in terms of travel, two trips to the West Coast, in terms of competition. So you look at this team, and you say, okay, what is real? We had a feeling coming in that the rotation would be problematic, and it is. It's too contact-oriented, 28th in strikeout rate. By the way, the Cardinals are 29th, their rotation. The rotation ERA, the Cubs, is 22nd. Opponents OPS, 28th. They're ahead of only Baltimore and Pittsburgh. Not good. So the rotation and whether it can sustain what the Cubs needed to sustain, that is one issue. And they've gotten a great run here from Alzali, but Hendricks and Davies and Arietta, Hendricks has been really good, but the other two, up and down. So that's one issue. Certainly a big one. The bullpen has been one of the great surprises of this season in baseball. Outside of Kimbrell and maybe Chafin, it's not a collection of name relievers. But 
Entering Sunday, wow, second in the league in bullpen ERA, first in opponent's OPS. Granted, there's been some batted ball luck in there, but man, they're first in strikeout rate too. I know Kimbrell is a lot of that, but they've been good. To expect them to be this good the rest of the way probably is unrealistic. So you might say, well, Ken, you're telling us the rotation is not good and won't improve, but the bullpen is good and also won't improve, only regress. Maybe that's unfair, I get it, but in my view, the bullpen's going to be tested as the year goes on, as all bullpens will. They might need to supplement there if they're going to stay in it. And with the rotation, I don't know that there's an easy way out of this. So long story short, to answer your question, can the Cubs stay in it? Yes, I don't know that any team is running away with that division, though Milwaukee is looking very good of late. But it's going to be a challenge that we didn't necessarily see in the same light when they were playing so well in May, and yet it's now been illuminated a little bit more. Yeah, it could be a long month of June. All right, well, teams thinking about making moves. That brings us to the next really group of questions, which are all about the trade deadline. Hey, Ken, my name is Zach. I had a question kind of leading up to the trade deadline. Obviously, it's beginning of June still, so we've got some time till the deadline. But why do you think that most teams wait till very close or day of, of the trade deadline to make their big trades? Why don't we see more of these trades like the Rays for uh, dealing Willie Adamas to the Brewers? feels like it's, if it's filling needs for both teams, it should be done sooner. It's just better for both teams probably get a bigger return for players like if the Rockies traded Trevor Story now for example they'd probably get a bigger return just because they would get the team getting him would get more time other than the fact that he's on the IL but I just wanted to hear your thoughts about why you feel like teams don't decide to make trades a little sooner when they could be beneficial and ultimately make a difference in a tight postseason race down the stretch. Zach your point is entirely valid a team would benefit from getting a player earlier. A team that trades a player would benefit from getting a greater return because they're giving up more control of that player. The problem is the dynamics that go into any deadline. It's just like me and you when we face deadlines at work. We kind of kick it into gear when the deadline's coming up. And generally speaking, it's that dynamic that drives this thing. When teams start to fear on July 25th or July 30th that oh, I can't solve this particular need, I got to get going now. That's part of it. The other part is that teams even now, we've seen about a third of the season, and yet some teams are still not quite sure what they're going to need come July, and they want to wait and see exactly what transpires and where their needs might be. And with the rash of injuries throughout the league, I would expect that kind of thinking is going to be even more foremost among teams as we go forward. Now, the trade you pointed to was an interesting one, and it did solve a need for both teams. Certainly, the Rays had room to move Willie Adamas because they had the infielders coming up, Taylor Walls for starters, Wander Franco eventually. They always are looking for bullpen arms and fire reason and Rasmussen certainly fit the bill in that regard. And for the Brewers, they were desperate at shortstop. So that time, it worked. And there have been times in recent years where we've seen trades happen sooner than later, but really, we don't see much in June. We've seen a couple of big ones in early July. And I think back, the biggest was July 7th, 2008. That was the CC Sabathia trade from Cleveland to Milwaukee, July 7th of that year, 
Michael Brantley was the player to be named and really the best player that the Indians acquired, the only impact player, ultimately. And then the other one was in 2014. That was July 4th. I'll never forget this. I was in Washington, D.C. and I think getting ready for a broadcast and boom, Jeff Zamarja and Jason Hamill went to the Cubs. I'm sorry, went to the A's from the Cubs and the Cubs acquired a package of players that included Addison Russell. And by the way, Billy McKinney, who's now with the Mets, has bounced around a little bit. So yes, in those particular cases, teams wanted to jump the market and wanted to act early. But more often, it's the two factors I mentioned, that the dynamic of a deadline forcing the issue at the end, and also the idea of waiting and wanting to see exactly what a need is rather than fill something and then maybe an injured player returns and you don't really need the player you acquired as much as you thought. All right, then we have a similar question, but this one more team-specific. Hey, guys. Tim Ryder. Uh, calling about the Mets. Do you think it's too early to start being aggressive on the trade market? You know, there's not going to be a lot of sellers out there, but, you know, if you show the willingness to get a deal done, there may be uh, more options than you think. Tim, this question is a good follow to the last question because it kind of embodies what I was saying. So... The Mets are a team right now that has a lot of players still out. Conforto, McNeil, Nimmo, J.D. Davis, Almora, and of course, Syndergaard and Carrasco. Do they know exactly what they need at this point? Mm, that would be tough to say. Now, certainly what it appears they're going to need is starting pitching. But maybe Carrasco comes around and maybe the need is not so great that they are willing to trade prospects, good prospects, for a really good starting pitcher. And also they want to see just how it all plays out with the players who are coming back. Hey, maybe Conforto or McNeil or Nimmo, hope this doesn't happen, but maybe one of them has a setback, maybe one of them gets re-injured by the time they come back and then the deadline hits. All kinds of things can happen. So for them, it is better to wait. It's better to know by the deadline, where you are with Syndergaard, who's supposed to resume throwing after the All-Star break. It's going to take some time for him to get back to game action, if he does at all. And then Carrasco, no clear timetable yet, but he should be back, I would think, by then from his torn hamstring. So with them, the Mets, in my view, it's just better to take a breath here. You're doing fine. You've got a nice division lead with all these players injured. And then see where you are come July 15th and start to make some decisions. Yeah, and one of the reasons the Mets have that comfortable lead is because of the NL East and what kind of a mess it's been, and that's the next question. Hi, this is Sarah from New Jersey. First of all, thanks for the great show. Before the season, the common belief seemed to be that the NL East was an overall strong division with four teams legitimately fighting for the top spot. Now, as of Thursday morning, the only team over 500 is the Mets' B team. Uh, my question is, is it too early to say that this division isn't only not great, that it's possibly the worst division in baseball? Or did a bunch of things just break the wrong way for all five teams, and by the end of the season, things should look more how we expected? And also, is it too early to say that this is the Mets division to lose? Sarah, your point is undeniably true. Right now, the NL East is the worst division. And it's stunning because we did think, as you mentioned, it would be the best division. Now, to answer your second question first, yes, it's too early to declare the Mets the team to beat or it's theirs to lose or anything like that. I'm not ready to do that. I guess you could say that and not have an argument, but 
I don't like making any proclamations about baseball ever, much less on June 6th. As for the rest of the division, I do think, Sarah, that it's going to improve. I think the Braves are going to be better. They're going to get a Noah back. They just activated Shane Green on Sunday. That will bolster their bullpen. They have been a funny team this year. They have not performed the way a lot of people expected. Their offense is good. It's a top 10 offense in the game right now. But while their rotation is improved over last year when really Freed and Anderson were the only guys you could trust, the bullpen, which was an absolute strength last year, has been a mess. So maybe Green stabilizes that. If they get a Noah back and that stabilizes their rotation further, they're in better shape. And I do think ultimately they play better. The Nationals, I'm not so sure about them. And Tom Boswell of the Washington Post wrote a column last week saying they need three of their most prominent players to perform. Strasburg, Corbin, and Soto. Soto, yes, performing. Strasburg, back on the injured list. Corbin, 6.28 ERA. Doesn't seem to me that it's going to be their year. The Phillies, like their rotation, don't like their defense. Next to last or near the bottom of the league in outs above average defensive run save that hurts them seemingly on a regular basis. Their bullpen, while better than last year, still not straightened out. I don't see it as being their year either. And then the poor Marlins, they've had injuries all season. Sixto Sanchez is yet to surface. Eliezer Hernandez, latest Cody Petit, that's just in the rotation. The whole left side of the infield is down. Miguel Rojas and Brian Anderson, if they were ever going to compete, it wasn't going to be this way. So yes, the division right now is a bit of a mess. I still see the AL Central as being a weaker division. And I know the records aren't indicating that, but man, I don't know how Cleveland does it. More power to them. Their offense is uninspiring to me. Detroit has gotten a much better effort from their starting rotation in the last two or three weeks. Really promising, actually, to see these young kids develop. Minnesota has been arguably the most disappointing team in baseball. Kansas City has recovered nicely. And, of course, the White Sox are the White Sox. I just don't see these teams necessarily as a collective as being better than the analyst. But that's a debate we will settle at the end of the season. All right, let's go from NL East to AL West. Hey, Ken. Kyle here from Houston. Seeing as Carlos Correa will most likely not be in an Astros uniform next season, would it make sense to trade him to a contender at the deadline to bolster the bullpen? I just can't see the Astros making a deep playoff run with the current state of their pen, and we can move Bregman to short and Diaz to third. Thanks a lot. Kyle, it was an interesting idea, though I was not going to endorse it, but it became a lot less interesting when Diaz went on the injured list for four to six weeks with a fractured left hand. I'm sure you sent your question in before that. But as for trading Correa, there are a couple of problems with it, and I can see why you would suggest that, because you're right, they're probably not going to re-sign him. Hasn't gone well so far, and they're going to be looking at that in the offseason, and he's going to be a free agent and probably go for the biggest deal he can find. But let's assume Diaz was even healthy. Well, you trade Correa, you're trading one of the best defensive shortstops in baseball, according to all the metrics right now. You're trading a guy with an 850-plus OPS, which is very good, and someone who is a leader of that team. So you're losing a lot there. Bregman would be moving to shortstop in the middle of the season. He's played that position, played it in college, but you're weakening yourselves defensively. You're also weakening yourselves at third with Diaz stepping in for Bregman. So two positions are affected. I, I just don't like the idea. Now, if you told me you were getting Kimbrell and Andrew Chafin for Correa, 
I think about it, but that's not going to happen most likely. And keep in mind too, the Astros are in a really good place right now in certain respects with their pitching. They have, cross your fingers, a surplus of starters, especially when McCullers comes back. This kid Garcia pitched well again on Sunday. It's going to be really hard to pull him out of the rotation. They have excess. They can move a starter or two perhaps to the bullpen. That will help. Also, at some point, they're going to get Josh James back, and they're theoretically going to get Pedro Baez back. Baez has been on the injured list the entire season. Those two will bolster their bullpen as well. Frankly, this team, in my view, might be a World Series favorite right now. And if these guys come back, the relievers in particular, and they can sort it out, they're in great shape. Yeah, let it ride. Hopefully Correa brings you a championship before he walks out the door. All right, next one's an email, Ken. It's from Jimmy Stark in Milwaukee. Uh, his question's about, no surprise, the Brewers. I feel like local and national fans alike are constantly thinking and talking about how good this pitching staff is. Woodruff and Burns are clearly two elite pitchers, and Hauser and Peralta have been giving them quality starts. Pair that with Devin Williams as a setup man and Hayter as a closer. And you have a lot of star power on the pitching staff. My question is, do you think they, they have enough? Is this a group good enough to compete for a championship? Jimmy, I actually do see the Brewers as almost a better postseason team than a regular season team. And I'll tell you why. You made the point correctly that they have a solid nucleus of quality to elite arms. And that is what you need in the postseason. You need starters who can dominate like Woodruff, Corbin, and Peralta. You need elite relievers like Hayter and like Williams has been. Now, Williams worries me a little bit. He has not been what he was last year. Strikeout rate is down, walk rate is up, hit rate up, home run rate up. He hasn't been bad by any stretch of the imagination, but he hasn't been as good. I might feel a little bit better about them if they hadn't traded Fireisen and Rasmussen, but they did, they needed Willie Adamas, I get it. So they're gonna have to patch it together to get to the end of the game a little bit, but they have starters who go deep. So they are in a position, one, to get to the postseason. And if they get there and they can keep everyone upright, which is gonna be a problem this season, keeping everyone healthy and effective, then yeah, they shorten their staff in the postseason and they go after it. I kind of like the idea of where they are right now. My only concern is guys wearing down, guys getting hurt, the usual that you would have in any season and particularly this season. But to answer your question, yes, they can be a team that goes pretty far with this kind of staff. I'd love to see them get a little bit more bullpen help to kind of compensate for what they lost, but this is where they are right now and it's pretty good. All right, we have one more question, Ken, and this has been every week we get one of these now. I think we opened up the can of worms about three weeks ago, but it's another Hall of Fame question. Hi, Ken. Some of the questions that have been asked have me thinking about Hall of Famers right now. How is it that a guy like Bill Mazurowski with his career numbers made it to the Hall of Fame, but Roger Maris did not? First of all, Tim, I have no problem with these questions. And yes, we opened it up <laughs> yeah, and we're going to get more of them. But yep. these are things that Writers think about all year long. Broadcasters think about all year long. Players, managers, front office. Well, maybe not those guys. But this is a constant source of discussion. And I appreciate all these kinds of questions. And this one, I understand where it's coming from. Now, I will start off by saying 
Bill Mazeroski cannot be blamed on the Baseball Writers Association of America. He was a Veterans Committee selection. He never got in in the BBWAA vote. That said, why is he in? Well, the walk-off homer in Game 7 of the 1960 World Series against the Yankees is one big reason. But the career itself, yes, he might have been one of the best defensive second basemen in history. And if you want to look at him that way, that kind of player, in my view, should be a Hall of Famer. Omar Vizquel is a good example now. Take away the allegations of sexual harassment that we published in December and just consider him as the player. I'm just asking you to do that for the purpose of this discussion. We can have a different discussion about whether he's worthy after those allegations surfaced. As a player, yes, when you dominate your position for that long defensively, even if you're not the offensive contributor ideally you'd like, in my view, that's a Hall of Famer. Mazeroski was that kind of guy, but the offensive numbers, whew, 667 career OPS, 16% below league average when you adjust that for park and league. It's just not a pretty profile. So that's one, Mazeroski. I can see why people don't want him in. He does fall below a certain standard and he opens an argument for a lot of others, including Frank White. Okay, I get that. Roger Maris. Now, it's called the Hall of Fame, right? This guy set the Major League single-season home run record while he was playing. Of course, it was later eclipsed by Bonds. But he was a famous player and a really good player. He just didn't do it for long enough. And here's a guy that had probably a seven-year peak. And that peak was good. It wasn't unbelievable except for the one year, 61, which was, yes, unbelievable, 61 homes that year. So that's why he does not get maybe the love that you think he should get. Now, there have been players, Koufax most notable among them, who got in with short, brilliant peaks. In Maris's case, I would suggest that the peak wasn't quite brilliant enough for a first baseman. Again, you can argue that, but to answer your question, that's how I see both those players. I always felt like that's despite him also getting a little boost just for, for being a Yankee, right? I mean, you get the Yankee boost, and that still wasn't enough to, to kind of get Maris over the top. Right, and certainly his profile, because he was a Yankee, was higher. And I'd like to think, Tim, although I'm sure fans would have an argument with this, that we generally take that out of the equation and that the New York chapter is not overly represented anyway. Mm -hmm. But certainly fans have lodged that complaint over the years, and I would have to look at it, but I imagine we've given them reason to feel that way in certain respects. All right, that is going to do it for our questions this week. If you want to get involved next week, uh, call us, 646-543-7072. That's how you can leave a voicemail, or you can email us, tabaseballshow at gmail.com. Kenna, uh, you're in Chicago, I think, next week. Cardinals-Cubs with Joe Buck and John Smoltz. We talked about the Cubs on the show. That's obviously, you go from Yankees-Red Sox to Cardinals-Cubs. You're living the good life. I am living the good life, and I am really looking forward to Returning to Wrigley, it's one of my favorite places, not just in baseball, not just in America, but on this earth. I love Wrigley, and I especially love going there for Cubs Cardinals. A few years back, Tim, we had a broadcast there on my birthday, September 19th. And listen, get to my age, you don't celebrate birthdays or care that much. But I'm thinking, as I'm standing there in the photo pit that day, and it's beautiful day at Wrigley and the game's about to begin. Pretty much outside of being with my family, there's no place I would have rather been than at Wrigley Field. So I'm very much fired up about going back there. 
Yeah, that'll be a fun one. And speaking of the Cubs, coming back on the Athletic Baseball Show tomorrow, it's Boog Shiambi, who is now, of course, on TV on uh, Marquee, the voice of the Cubs starting this year, and, of course, longtime voice on ESPN. He's always fun to talk to, so that's going to be a good show on Starkville on Tuesday. Coming up on Thursday, Hunter Pence and Grant Brisby. And, of course, on Friday, it's always Derek Van Riper and Keith Law finishing off the weekend. If you want to join The Athletic, you can do that right now for just $3.99 a month. Go to theathletic.com slash baseball show to do that. Ken, great show again. Thanks for answering all the great questions. Tim, thank you, and thanks to everybody. The questions were outstanding. Actually, they've been outstanding every week, and keep them coming. All right. Have a great week, everyone.